Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I am Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed in this podcast are our own and not our employers. Our last episode was part one of our fantastic interview with the Tinder swindler star victim, Cecilia Fielhoy, where we learned about what it was like dating the swindler, Simon Leviev, and what the aftermath of his crimes and of the Netflix documentary have looked like for her. Make sure you go back and listen to that episode first if you haven't had the chance yet. On this episode, we pick up where we left off, having just learned about Cecilia's dating life today. Let's see what Simon is up to and whether Cecilia thinks he will be able to evade legal enforcement against his crimes forever. a little bit now about Simon's current dating life. Are you shocked, Cecilia, that he seems to continue finding so many women to date that could probably get a lot of guys? And presumably all these women have seen the documentary and he manages to explain it all away. So it looks like he's dated at least two models this year alone, including one that's at least a decade younger than himself. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we just read an article about a recent victim who's been dating him this year, who acknowledged doing so despite having seen the Netflix documentary. And lo and behold, he did ultimately allegedly con her out of six figures. So is his charm, the love bombing, the, the future faking game, right, where he promises, oh, we'll get married, we'll have children, etc. Is that game that strong that he constantly manages to defraud women to this day, that he never defrauded anyone, nor ever made death threat to you and others, which is his story to this day, despite all the voicemails and right, he seems to be claiming like well that was just what edited weird or something i mean like how why is it why do you think is it his charisma i it's i don't want to give him any praise but he is if you meet him and he is really different than you know you see the videos and it's like oh he's so stuck up but he's not like that when you meet him he is loving he is funny like the kind of like in the car when he tapes himself, it's just for show, but the guy he's actually showing you is supposed to be the real deal, you know, how, where he is a great guy. I feel it's so sad. I think this is so, so sad to see. I think the biggest blame should be put on European police for being inactive when they had all possibilities to put him in jail back in 2019 in Europe. So I think those are the first to be blamed that he's still out there defrauding people. There are even more victims I know of in Israel, which is a good thing now that he is in Israel because now he is starting to amass several victims in one country. So because this is how he had been able to continue. One victim there, one victim there, two victims there. Now, so... So kind of happy because he will go to jail now because of what he's doing. He's putting in, he corner himself. But to see the amount of women, to see the amount of women that's coming forward now that I know. Either way, I've seen them on his TikTok. So I know that he is defrauding you guys. Like he needs to get the money from somewhere that they've seen the documentary. Believe him that we are just liars and that he had the answers to to all of it 
I, I don't know. The thing is that I have been questioned so much as well. I have been like so many times. So I, I'm not in the right position to pass judgment over these women. But I think it's really sad because if I could have had the same thing, Google Simon Levive, and all of this came up when I met him the first time, I would never have gotten as far as falling in love. I don't know what it is. I, I think this is, uh, it, it's, outstand- it's astonishing to me. I saw the interview with the latest girl because luckily I have people who follow me from Israel that are sending me. And um, I don't know what to say. I, what are you thinking? Like, is this, is this normal? Because I, I am like, I don't, <laughs> sorry that I'm laughing, but I, I don't know what to say about it because I am shocked that he can still do it. I have a little bit to say about it. So from the psychology perspective, although backing up, I can tell you a story from before I have memories. When I was a little baby, my parents took me to some, they tell me about this, but they took me to some, I don't know if it was like an exotic pet store or an exotic pet, I don't know, place that you go to see exotic animals. Anyway, they were carrying me around this little baby and they said it was like a panther or something that was stalking me the entire time from the other side of the glass. It had honed in on the little vulnerable thing. And it understood that is, is something that I can, that I can seek out. And the thing that I often have to explain to people as a psychologist, when I cover different, like, and I teach, I teach about mental health conditions and I'm so sympathetic. I'm a huge advocate for being supportive of people who are struggling with mental health conditions. But I will say, except for this one, except for antisocial personality disorder, which in my opinion is in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in the International Classification of Diseases, really honestly more uh, as an intellectual exercise to, to be able to say, yes, this person meets the criteria, and also to warn other people. It's really not something that's very treatable because for somebody to be treated for these kind of conditions that essentially involve just a lack of empathy for other people, to be treated for that, they would have to then develop empathy for other people. That is the treatment. And to do that would mean to make it harder to get the thing that you yourself want. And so people who have these kind of conditions, not that I'm diagnosing him, obviously I've never met him, but whether we're going to call it antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy, being a con man, whatever you want to call it, these are people that often just lack empathy, lack regard for just the basic human dignity of other people. And they feel as though I want the quickest and most straightforward path to getting what I want, no regards for the impact that will have on other people. And because they lack that empathy, it makes it so it's very comfortable for them to play a role that any of us with any kind of empathy would feel so uncomfortable and wrong playing that role. It would, it would just feel immoral to us. And so we draw a line at that. But people who don't have that line to draw can become, they're very good at spotting other people's uh, vulnerabilities. And in this case, you know, empathy, I guess, is a vulnerability in so many other areas it's good to have, but they're good at spotting that. And then they're good at exploiting that by saying, what kind of person would this person want to be with? And let me play that role. And because they're so focused on getting what they want in the end, they aren't being stopped by the things that would stop most of us, which is essentially, this just feels wrong. Yeah, but I was just thinking more as well, like, it's, it's fine that he is who he is, but how can, I don't mean it like that, but 
I went out of my way, you know, to put his picture out there. How are, is it something conditioned in us humans that some, if you're vulnerable enough that you, you refuse to see the truth, even though when you Google his name, like nothing out there, I, no one has reached out to us either that is, you know, met him in Israel. Hi, I met Simon in Israel. He's saying everything's a lie. I think it's just so, I think that's, I don't want to pass judgment, but it's difficult for me because I wish that they had, I wish I had the information they had. And there's, yeah. I'll jump in here with some armchair psychology. Uh, I look, I go back to what we were talking about with what people's options are, right? And when you see how few men seem to be interested in serious relationships, and here he comes along and he is conventionally good looking. He acts kind of all of the qualities we talked about. He meets these women. Right now, it's interesting that he seems to be going after some younger women that perhaps don't have some of the life experiences that some other people have had. Uh, he sort of like flashes all this, all this charisma, his whatever cars that he gets Lord knows where, like all of these things. And so there is, and, and I've argued about, I've argued this in my work also, there is a real incentive to disregard red flags. There is a rational incentive, weirdly enough, to disregard red flags, right? Where it's like, for as long as possible, you want to be like, well, but, but what if it is true? What if it is true, everything he's saying? What if it is true that these women are lying and I could have this amazing boyfriend, husband, who wants to have kids with me, all these things that nobody else is, is doing. So you sort of yeah. cling to that as long as humanly possible. And like you said, he's very good at faking documents. So we can, we can suspect he's faking documents to the women that he's seeing now. And some of them seem to be indicating that, right? Uh, and, and so here he has, again, I'm going to go back to beating up on TikTok. He has all these followers. He is on reputable platforms that where they might be thinking, well, if he was that bad, TikTok would take him down, Cameo would take him down, right? So again, I think it goes back to what Michelle was saying. There is this social influence others around him seem to be acting like things are okay and he probably still has an entourage that will say like oh everything is is great so so he has recreated wow. the truman show but michelle give us something that's not armchair i guess before i go into the legal stuff i think that's great but i will add two things and actually cecilia one of them is what you opened the tinder swindler with which is this idea of a fairy tale so many women were raised on this idea of if I am a good, kind, thoughtful person, then one day I'm going to get what I deserve for that. We're, we're raised on this idea. And then we yeah. experience life, right? Where that doesn't happen, where we're a good, kind, thoughtful person and life just kind of knocks us all around. And then you meet somebody who treats you so kind and like, and, you're, and something clicks in your head and you're like, this is it. This is what I've always been told is, is due to me for being this good. And I really think a lot of it's that. And then again, just the sheer power of charisma. Some people are kind of okay at it, but some people are incredibly charismatic. And so it may be possible that yeah. not all of us have met one of those top tier charismatic people. But again, I'm going to bring American politics into it. I will say that a fair amount of our politicians are elected on the basis of charisma rather than elected on the basis of ability. And, yeah. and so I know that there are people out there like that, who their charisma will overpower 
our logic a lot of the time. So I just wanted to add those two points. No, thank you. I I know, like, I just, I knew it deep down inside, but sometimes you just get so sad over all the lives and everything after 2019, you know, this is on them, this is not on me. And it, you just get sad when, when you, when you see it, because it's, it's lives, you know, and they can't even pay. It's a lot of money for people. So that he's taken. So, and like, and, and the, like, and the amount of drama is over there now in Israel and all because the Levive has sued him as well. So it's like, he has so many troubles in Israel and I visited Israel this summer actually. And I saw him at a beach club. So I know that he can just walk around and people take selfies with him and everything. So, so I said, I'm not returning before he's in jail. And then we will celebrate properly because uh, that will be a joyous day. And it's coming for him. I know it's just been, I think, the repercussions of the documentary. I was hoping for more critical journalism. Why wasn't there one piece written about what happened in Greece that summer? Why did he go to Israel? Why didn't Interpol, why didn't any police in Europe want him? I wanted that to come out. And now we just, I lost faith a bit. And now that he's stuck in Israel, now he's starting to defraud. How many people are there now? I know at least three. It's going to be four, like four people now in Israel. So we're, I'm crossing my fingers that he will go to jail before Christmas. That That is what I'm hoping for. And one last thing, Israeli prisons are horrible as well. So we, we should be more thankful that it's going to be a prison there than in a Norwegian prison, to be honest. <laughs> Let me get into some of the legal nitty gritty because I have been chomping at the bit about that. So for one about the Lviv lawsuit, uh, I saw that the Lviv family has said that any proceeds from that lawsuit will go to the victims. And uh, that includes uh, accusations about the claims that he made about being part of their family, use of the Lviv Diamonds trademark, right? Like all of these things that he did. And so that's going to be really interesting to follow because at least that's one thing uh, our listeners need to to understand those that are not already steeped in the law. There is a difference between criminal prosecutions and civil lawsuits. And even when we can't get the criminal prosecutions going, fortunately, in situations like this, people can still at least go after him civilly and at least go after some of that money to the extent he hasn't spent all of it. So one of the things um, about when he went from Greece to Israel, uh, I heard at one point that there was an extradition agreement that somehow happened where that agreement was contingent on his not getting prosecuted for his crimes outside of Israel, but just the ones in Israel. So somehow that that was part of the condition for sending him then. And that's, I think, the moment you're talking about when Interpol should have intervened and said, no, hold on. So anyway, any more detail you can give about that. I also heard his other victim, Pernilla, mention in another interview that Simon made sure to commit his crimes in different European countries, uh, in part, uh, perhaps, because he knew it would make things more complicated. So she gave the example that if a Swedish prosecutor goes after him, then other EU countries are allowed to bring their claims in as well. So if a country agrees to prosecute him, they now have this whole international mess they have to sort out. That also uh, includes the problem that debt was not uh, accrued in his name, but rather other, other people's names. So there are all these levels. So part of the question I have is, do you see any action on the part of any European country at this point to get him extradited? 
And if not, why not? And I'm sort of wondering, um, this is like a really legal nerdy question now, but do you have any insight on whether Brexit has changed anything? Because I was wondering whether the fact that the UK is no longer part of the EU gives the UK the ability to say, okay, we're just going to deal with the things he did here. So if we get him extradited to the UK, if we get him prosecuted here, we don't necessarily have to go now, of course, you know, all the victims would prefer for it all to be dealt with in one place. But but it would be better to get something going, for example, the things he did against you in the UK. Could the UK just deal with that? Uh, and if so, why aren't they doing it? And, and I'm wondering what you and the other victims are doing to advocate for the authorities in the EU to do something. That was a lot of uh, <laughs> that was a lot of questions. Yeah, of questions. Uh, if if we just go back to the summer, um, I was in that very unfortunate circumstance that I was viewed as a suspect. So when I tried to get any information from the police about this man who had made death threats towards me, I was not allowed to get any information of what was going on. And I just got told, well, then, well, you will see it in the media. So that was really, really fun. And I got really upset and I was crying at work. It's not been very good. So all the information I got was just from other victims that still had their open cases. And how I saw it was more that we were just waiting because he had been taken with a fake passport. So he was just in prison in Greece and we just were fearful because no one put out an international arrest warrant. Just one country could have needed to do that, you know. But then I think I agree with what Penelope was saying. There's a lot of layers to this. It's politics, it's money, it's budgets. It was easier for them if then Israel came in and, you know, the old stuff he had done back in 2011, which was not as serious as what he's done in Europe. So when we heard that Israel wanted him extradited, we were actually really, really happy at the time because he would have just gotten loose, would have just walked right out again. What the, you know, like we were, what are you doing? So at the time we were happy, but then we saw by him going to Israel, Pernilla's case got dropped in Sweden. Uh, I don't know if that was part of why my case was dropped as well. It might have been, you know, because what's the point of upholding something? Um, it can be partly because of that. So that's why, because we feel really, that was just all our own feeling is that Israel was just so embarrassed and he put such a negative spin on Israelis outside in the world. So they said, oh, just like get, get him back here, you know, <laughs> like this is like, so I think that's what happened there. Regarding Brexit, I don't know. I haven't, since my case got dropped, I... I just been so upset and sad over my treatment by the UK police that I have not wanted to go into that because, you know, it's dropped. There's nothing going on. They, I'll never get justice as long as my case is not reopened. Um, we know that there are investigations being done in several countries. I can't say, <laughs> I'm not going to say where, but I we know that there's still open investigations in other countries. He's wanted in Spain, like this it's just so much it's the reason why he's in israel he's scared of traveling because he doesn't know if he comes to an airport and his face is known now that was my biggest hope but yeah what we're doing now we uh, with the levive lawsuit we are helping the levives with both documents because simon is saying like 
oh, I never said I was the CEO. I just changed my name to Levive. And we're like, all of us have pay slips, you know, fake pay slips, transfers, his email signature. Like, it's so stupid of him. So uh, we've been helping with documentation. And then we are planning, you know, if they want to, we can testify regards our conversations with him, you know, uh, to say that he said he was the CEO. So we're so grateful because no one was doing anything so that you have the Levives who are rich and powerful enough to go after him. But Israeli police are not doing their part either. I don't know if you listen to the, it's an amazing podcast that was uh, The Making of a Swindler. It's a three-part. Yeah, yes, it's, we did. it's so great. And to hear how kind of his dad how the police is having an active investigation on, on him and his dad, but still nothing is going on. It's just a lot of shit. Like, there's just some shadiness here. Like, it's... And the thing is that I can't do that investigations by myself. But if that's not what the journalists are interested in checking up on, you know, then it's not much to do. But yeah. And there's the recording with his father, right, where they're trying to scam that uh, other rabbi, where he gets introduced and they and, and Simon discusses being a relative. He claims, right, that Lev Levive is his father's cousin, Lev Levive being the, the founder of the, you know, the diamond company. So, I mean, some... You know, it looks like some pretty hard evidence there. So one of the questions that, that I, I have as a result of this is, is there is it the laws that really need to change? Or is the problem that, you know, maybe the laws are, are okay the way they are, or at least workable, but it's an enforcement problem that you bring down people like Simon, as well as international crime rings that squeeze money out of people from abroad with often without even meeting them. And, you know, I'm going back to what you were saying earlier about how even if a victim was naive, whatever that means, many legal scholars have pointed out and including myself that, okay, the law is supposed to protect vulnerable people more, not less. That's why we have special protections for all sorts of groups, um, such as, I mean, one example is children. We protect children more than other people, not less. We don't say like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're naive. Therefore, let them fend for themselves. Uh, it's not like when somebody turns 18, that suddenly means like we should throw them to the wolves, which it seems like is what is happening here. And I mean, I wonder how much of this is kind of that it's part of organizations, right? We say the police, but there are particular individuals that are making these decisions. And so do you feel like there has been focus on those individuals really kind of naming and shaming them perhaps, or, or is this a, a larger problem and, and that just wouldn't do much? I think there's both. I've heard that it all depends which officer gets your case here in the UK. It shouldn't be like that. So if you get a police officer that has the empathy and understand the victims of fraud, then you'll have a much better chance of getting justice in your case than if you get the one who are more biased towards. And I think what we need to realize, we all have biases. And it's not a negative thing. It's about being human. But we need to realize them and look at them. Maybe think about, maybe I did go into this case as hard because of how I'm kind of, oh, I'm not the fraud victim, you know. Which is not like, yeah, I would have felt the same way sometimes, you know. Oh my God, not again. This is like, <laughs> but it, it will still happen. So I think that is one thing. And I think it's just 
this is how society like if you think about the reactions to the tinder swindler when everyone is so 50 50 it's almost being a victim of a victimless crime they don't look as it's your fault so if the police are not getting 100 percent like, why are you doing anything? But 50% of it is kind of like, oh, yeah, God, don't care about that. It's her own fault. They're not getting much of a push to actually look at the case again. And then, of course, as I say, we don't have laws to protect. In Norway, when I was taken to court by the banks, I was trying to use a law, a sleeping law. So no matter what I did, no matter how much documentation, nothing, there weren't any laws I could use to protect myself from the situation I was in. And the same thing is, is proven with the officer calling me, saying that, well, I needed to see if it was worth going after you to get to him. How on earth is that okay to do towards a victim of a traumatic incident? I can't even imagine that they thought that was a smart idea to do. So traumatized I was of that treatment, you know, and you just did it to see if you could get to him. So yes, there's something completely wrong with the law. So I think if the law would change, I think then the opinion of people would change as well because then they would see, okay, the police is going up there. They are talking on the behalf of the victim. Well, here's that. No, we're just dropping it, Cecilia. Oh, it's so difficult to prove. How? I don't I don't get it. How is it difficult to prove that he defrauded me? He did. It's like I have the entire, like, <laughs> it, I don't get understand if everything was in person. You know, when you have so much documentation and you say, oh, that's still, it's still difficult. You, you still gave him, him your money. Everyone is saying you gave him your money. And I was like, well, that's fraud. <laughs> that is fraud. I don't get it. Sorry. I just like, <laughs> yes, I, I mean, you would never have gotten it <laughs> if you would have been truthful. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And again, we seem to take fraud against companies and businesses more seriously, even for much smaller amounts, because this was a huge amount. This was a huge amount. There's really no way to, to emphasize that enough. And, and yet here we are. So look, until society finally takes these things more seriously and protects daters better, and until people like Simon uh, stop acting unethically, which is really the primary thing that needs to happen here, do you have any advice for individuals on dating apps about how to protect themselves from bad actors? And I also want to give you the opportunity here to comment on whether you think that dating apps and their operators themselves should be doing more. I know you spoke with Anna Rowe on uh, Instagram Live about the fact that, for example, the photo verification tools of a lot of major apps are kind of a joke because you can get your pictures verified and you get the check mark and then you just substitute it for like fake pictures. So could you talk more about what can daters do and what can dating apps do and what you'd like to see? I think as, as I said, why I, I totally get dating apps, but sometimes I just feel like they're getting so much worse rep than what it's like. It's not the dating apps in themselves that the issue here, you know, is us humans and how we are using it. So a lot of times I feel like, because I, I, I love dating apps. So I've never been like such a, everyone is saying, oh, they should just get away. Well, I'm like, for me, they have been, even though one story was, but he didn't deceive me on Tinder either. It's not that he was using Tinder as a way of looking. I never believe what's on Tinder. You believe what you see in real life. That's it for me. And if you check out their Instagram and tag pictures, and if he has friends, etc., that's how I go after checking someone's. But I have to say, if you're on like more of those maybe scammers and proper catfishes, 
you have to be mindful of. As I said, I even got catfished a couple days ago again. I was talking to someone and I was like, well, you could see, for example, that their English is you can see that their English is bad. Even me, that's from a non-native. Like I could, you you can spot them from very far. They're they're always very very handsome men, and they're always after a long term relationship. Is very nice. And you're like, no no. If you look, I I I'm in, I'm in London. I date in London. Such a handsome guy is never after a long term relationship. It's so funny. I was like, no no no, you're not. <laughs> but I have to say, for for date. For people who are on dating apps, use the same same caution as you would meet someone in, in, in a bar. I have to say, you don't know more about the guy you meet in a bar and get the number to than the person that you're on the dating app. I have to say, they will never ask you for money. As I said, they're red flags because you don't see them. The minute someone asks you for any money or there any imminent danger, they put you in a stressful situation. If someone loves you, they would never put you in that situation. So they know that there and as we were talking about on the live as well like the positions they have they always are in different countries i was speaking to my mom actually because she's on tinder now and she's a pro at finding the catfishes she's she's 65 you know she's in the she's in that age where the men are just like so she is like the minute they ask to go on whatsapp she's like no 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 we can talk here if they're not verified even though now i can tell her that that is not as safe but she always says that they're in three different countries they they might be born in the us and then suddenly they're in afghanistan for work but now they're based in greece it's like it's, she always says it's always this elaborate uh situations situations they're in so i'm i'm kind of proud of my mom that she has been able to she she can see them from uh, along and for the dating app themselves, they can do so much more. I have seen some pictures of models that I know are models from, I've been on Tinder for a long time now, you know, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so I've seen the same pictures being used of the same model. And we know with facial recognition now, there has to be a way now for them not to be able to use the same pictures, at least of the same cat, of the same handsome people. Like, okay, we know that this is being used as Froster, you need to be able to verify yourself. And as well, like I, I heard something that they thought that Simon was on Tinder and now he's been blocked. I think it needs to be better how we can actually take action. For example, if I'm talking to a catfish and he blocks me, I have no way of actually reporting him, even though I know it's the catfish, but he blocks me before I have the opportunity to report him. And I think that's a shame as well, that they can, it should be somewhere where you can let them know that the lost deleted, like something that you can let them know. I don't know your opinions. You're much into the dating app sphere than uh, their issue and what they can do. I think it's, it's, it's difficult, I feel, because I work in tech and if you put too much friction as well, uh, it's about privacy. I don't think a lot of people would give away that much personal information either to tech companies. So it's a, it's difficult. One quick thing I want to say is that what, what you're saying about uh, when somebody blocks you, there was this big report by ABC Australia about women that were raped uh, by men on dating apps. And after that, Bumble in Australia actually changed that feature. But this is a very narrow thing, right? Bumble in Australia mm -hmm. changed that feature so that uh, because what the rapists were doing is that they were immediately unmatching yeah. the person so that if she hadn't saved the pictures, she wouldn't be able to go to the, the police and it would be this whole thing where you have to subpoena 
uh, right, the, the, the images, and it would take a lot more, longer and be much more complicated. And so now somebody unmatching you does not make the unmatching happen on the other end. Now, look, is it totally foolproof? Not necessarily. I guess the rapist could still get a hold of the person's phone, but it makes it a lot harder. It makes it more complicated. And so, yes, there are these fixes, and Michelle and I have talked about some of these on the show. I've talked about some of this in, in my own work. There are definitely things some of the dating apps could be doing that they're not doing. And part of it is exactly what you're describing about the, the friction. They want to make things easy. They want to make sign up easy. They want to have a large volume of users and anything that they put in that's going to slow things down. That's like, hey, you've got to show us your credit card, even if you're not paying anything, but that will be proof of identity or anything like that is going to be something that people are going to experience as a hassle. But at the same time, it is cost benefit analysis um, that we have to look at societally and who are the victims. The victims are not a random cross segment of society. And we see women and sexual minorities victimized oftentimes at higher rates. But anyway, uh, Michelle, I can hand you the baton. Well, and so you may have already, if, if there's anything you want to add to this, because I think what you just said were some very good concrete points about what people can look for in terms of protecting themselves while on the apps and some things that apps can do. But a question we have for you is, what role is your organization, Action Reaction, hoping to play in bringing about change? Oh, I'm I'm so excited for 2023 because I realized that, you know, if you have an organization, you can't be by yourself. And I officially moved to the UK now, like after some years battling if I was going to fix stuff in my home country and realized I'm not. My base is here permanently now. So I uh, have actually teamed up with Anna and because we both have, you know, years now where we've been thinking about and we met up for lunch and it was like, okay, all of our plans is the same. (laughs) Like we've been thinking about the same things. So yeah, what it will do is one of the key things I've seen that no one is talking about, like, especially I have more experience from Norway, but Practical help can can be found, but mental support and peer support and the support I've gotten from other fraud victims have sometimes been better than a therapist, sorry, but sometimes just talking to someone else that truly understands that pain is something that fraud victims only understand together. So it's kind of creating that mental health support so they will feel empowered to go in and seek justice, you know, be empowered to actually go to the police in a proper manner, go to the banks and, you know, have their rights and they have know their rights. So it will be both that, we'll start with mental health support in different ways. We'll be as well continuing Anna's great work on helping people with practical things but maybe optimize it it a bit more so she doesn't have all you know a bit of step-by-step guides and then we really really want to create some learning and training for police and banks i've done several talks to banking investigators and banks and i think they need we don't know their processes today you know but i feel like they can be improved on how they talk to fraud victims and how they support them how what kind of language are are they using are they you know and i know that it's a difficult road because as they say which some of the questions i got which was a bit more difficult was like but when we start investigating fraud we don't know if they're in it or not so it's kind of at the start they need to tread 
But that is why it's difficult to have a longer and better process to go through. How is your process today? What are the pain points for your users? And then create it better. So we have like these three kind of different projects that we're going to start working on. And I'm very excited because it was just nice for me to finally settle down in which country because it exists in Norway, but I've been a bit disappointed with my home country. So I would rather do the work in a country where I felt welcomed and supported in other aspects. So I'm very excited. Well, that all sounds incredible. And I can certainly say as a therapist, I regularly refer people to groups, to support groups, because you're absolutely right. There is a certain kind of understanding that unless the therapist has personally been through something, they're not going to be able to provide as much empathy, as much support as they may be able to provide. There's something so important about being able to connect with and have a sense of community with people who have dealt with the exact same struggle. So I think that's so important. And also what you said about training relevant organizations, it's so important too. So line of work I've been involved with at different points is helping to train police on how to respond to situations in which mental health issues may be involved because there is a disproportionate amount of violence that can occur in situations in here in America where police can respond and the person who they're receiving a call about may have a mental illness and they may be in the middle of some active episode of that mental illness and they are perceived as dangerous when in fact they're just in distress. And so I think it's that same kind of idea of educating the police, educating in your case, the banks about Mm -hmm. how to be supportive, so important. So I'm really excited as well to see the work that your organization does in 2023. So I know I have one final question for you. And, you know, throughout this talk, it's been so hard to think about this idea of what it must have been like to be in your shoes. It hurts so much to be taken advantage of. And then to see that play out on a world stage. And also, even just underneath that, the original kind of sin that happened here was to have somebody fool you into thinking they cared about you. And then everything else that came from that. So... While some of your story may seem unbelievable to people, some parts of it are absolutely relatable. And our last question for you is just, how are you doing now? What's helped you to move forward? I think when everything blew up again in February, both me and Pranilla just looked at each other and were like, oh, not again. (laughs) Because it becomes very tiring. Because it's been five years now, so I have healed. I've gone to therapy. You know, I've, I've had the support. I've had the pleasure of making the documentary, which has been, you know, that is something I'm very proud of and has helped me heal. Because it's almost like therapy, just having to talk about it and talk and explain and reflect. That has helped me. While for others, just want to forget. I haven't had the pleasure of doing so. So... I think that has really helped me. I had the two trials that I had to attend. And then you can imagine when the other side have your entire WhatsApp with your. (laughs) So you would know that they would find any message there, you know, to say. So you would have to stand very firmly in your ground and why you did what you did. And I think that has helped me now being able to talk about it without being sad, without having a pinch in my stomach. I feel like it's, It's just in, as I call it, like, it's just laying in a, sorry, a drawer, sorry. It's laying in a drawer and I can take it out, talk about it and then put it 
back there again. I think that's how I view it. So now, now I'm doing great, but it's just, I think when your life gets turned upside down with this type of thing, you're wondering what is your future going to be? It's starting to be a bit more clearer, but it's still like a work in progress, I feel. And I'm 34, I'm turning 35 now. And that is just insane to me. Like half, all of my 30s have just been this case. I did not wish, I didn't, I didn't think that. <laughs> oh, when it all happened. Oof. I, I, as I said, I was thinking that it would end. I like, I remember May, 2018. I was like, well, I'm a victim. This is like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, no, no, this can't happen. You know, like this is going to work itself out. If I'm happy, I didn't know the journey I had to go on back then. Because I don't know what I would have done then. I think it's good that <laughs> oblivious. <laughs> I hear you. It's, it's good to see you thriving. Hmm. Thank you. Yes. And we are so excited about all of your projects and our listeners can find out what you're up to on Instagram at Cecilia underscore mm -hmm. and also on your website, which is CeciliaPielheu.com. Yes. And with that, thank you so much for coming today. This has been informative, emotional. Uh, we and our listeners have learned so many new and amazing things about you and about your journey to get to this point. So thanks so much for, for everything you've done for everyone. And I was just going to say, you know, well, not every future victim can be saved. You have saved so many people and that is huge. You have helped society so much mm -hmm. and many of these people will remain invisible, but they exist and whether they were going to become Simon's victims or victim to somebody else. So it really uh, can't be said too much. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Thank you. enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com without a the. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vladku Zhuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye.